I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Dudley Lamming. Dr. Lamming is a professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where his lab studies the molecular physiology of aging. We discussed a variety of topics related to aging, diet, and metabolism. In particular, we focused on his research that is to do with the effects of high-protein diets on metabolic health and aging. So how how eating a high-protein diet, a diet rich in amino acids, affects things like your blood sugar regulation, uh, fat content, and various aspects of aging. In particular, his research has focused on what are called branched-chain amino acids. These are a subset of the amino acids that are found in proteins that seem to be particularly important when it comes to metabolic health and aging. And so his research has looked at how diets high in these or low in these affect longevity and metabolic health in rodents. His research has looked into sex differences, so the way this diet can affect males and females differently. They've looked at various aspects, molecular aspects of metabolic health, including the mTOR pathway, the effects on longevity of diet composition, and lots of the biochemical and molecular components that go into all of this. So if you're interested in the effects of diet on metabolic health and aging, in particular, the effects of protein and amino acids and specific amino acids on different aspects of metabolic health and longevity, this will be a really interesting episode for you. As always, if you enjoy the content on the Mind and Matter podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. You can subscribe for free to my weekly newsletter at mindandmatter.substack.com. On my Substack, you'll find all of my podcast content as well as written content that I put up that integrates and synthesizes a lot of the things I talk about across different episodes of the podcast. And you can sign up for that newsletter to receive updates about who upcoming guests will be, what topics and what research I'm thinking about, and other interesting content that's related to what I put on to this podcast. Podcast. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Dudley Lamming. I always like to ask us up front just to describe uh, who you are and what type of research you do in your lab. Uh, I'm Dudley Lamming. I'm an associate professor of medicine uh, here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And I'm in the uh, division of endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism. So we really focus on the biology of aging um, with a strong interest in how that's regulated um, by metabolism and metabolic processes and dietary nutrients. Yeah. And just starting out like really, really broad for people that don't have a background in this, what exactly is metabolism and what does it mean for someone just in very general terms to be metabolically healthy or unhealthy? Like what are the major things that scientists and physicians would look for to determine that? Sure. Um, I would say I would consider metabolism, all of the pathways around um, taking nutrients in from the environment, um, such as sugar and fats and um, uh, protein and converting them into either energy or other building blocks inside the cell that we can use 
um, to either repair existing cellular structures or replicate the cell. Um, in terms of what healthy metabolism is, typically um, we think of healthy metabolism as sort of the opposite end of a spectrum where the unhealthy end of a spectrum would be um, people who are obese or diabetic or insulin resistance. Typically, um, metabolic unhealthy people might also have high levels of uh, lipids and be at increased risk for cardiovascular disease. So at the other end of the spectrum, sort of the metabolically healthy end, we'd assume that people would have good levels of HDL, low levels of LDL and triglycerides, overall probably have a lower level of fasting blood glucose and be sensitive to insulin. Metabolically healthy people are probably able to adapt to different fuel sources and um, to periods of fasting and overfeeding a little bit more um, quickly than people who are probably metabolically unhealthy. And our ability to adapt our metabolism to different fuel sources also declines with age. Um, and so we typically think of people who are older might also be more metabolically unhealthy. Um, about a quarter of the people over age 65, for instance, um, have diabetes. Hmm. And what would be like a good example of someone's metabolism adapting to like a new, a new diet or something like that? What exactly does it mean to adapt to a, a change in the food that you're intaking? Well, we see this in mice all the time. And we do these types of experiments in the lab. You could do exactly the same experiment on a person. It's just much more inconvenient. Um, we could put mice in a chamber where we measure their respiratory gases. And we can measure how much oxygen and carbon dioxide they're taking in and then breathing out. And that lets us, um, based on some equations that were developed a long time ago and some sort of very basic observations, um, let us calculate what fuel sources are being used. So normally a metabolically uh, healthy mouse or person, um, when they eat food, they'll burn the carbohydrates off um, sort of first. They'll start metabolizing them first. They might take some of those carbohydrates and store them as lipids for later when they're not eating. Um, and during periods of fasting or when you are not um, don't have food present, you might be focused on burning off uh, lipids and use, utilizing lipids. Mice that are obese and insulin resistance don't have this fluctuation in terms of car burning carbohydrates versus burning um, fats or not to the same degree. And so um, the degree at which they adapt to different foods um, or to fasting and feeding conditions varies. So someone who's insulin resistant and or obese, they don't have that kind of adaptation. Uh, so, so what exactly does it look like in terms of their metabolism when they eat something that's, say, carbohydrate versus fat-rich compared to someone who is healthy? Well, at least from the perspective of mouse, um, there's relatively small fluctuations. We can measure um, the RER or respiratory quotient um, in our metabolic chambers, and we can see um, that it fluctuates less, um, more obese and insulin-resistant animals. Why do you think that is? Is there maybe like an evolutionary reason for how we think about this, like are, are animals like mice and like like humans, in our you know for most of our evolutionary history, have we just been in environments where we had to constantly like switch our diet up and adapt to new conditions? I think that's probably exactly right. Um, you know, this idea that there's sort of food always available um, in the refrigerator or in our desk drawer. You know, if we're in the office, uh, uh, you know, or just walking home, right? We're constantly surrounded by foods and options to to purchase food, and so you know that didn't happen evolutionarily. And I think we needed to be able to sort of quickly adapt to make the best, most efficient use of. Um, what food sources were available, you know, when, uh, when fruits or vegetables are, are plentiful and easy to get, presumably you need to get those. And, um, when, you know, you need to be hunting, you probably need to be able to take best advantage of, uh, that type of nutrient source as well. And so there's a lot of research going on. I know that you've done stuff related to this that has to do with caloric restriction and the effects that, that has on metabolic health. So just starting again in, in very broad terms, what would you say is sort of the general overall picture we have is today of how caloric restriction tends to affect metabolic health in mice and humans? So um, first of all, calorie restriction, as, as you're aware, is this idea that if we restrict the number of calories that um, an animal or maybe a person is consuming, um, below their ad libitum level, their sort of free feeding level, um, then that's associated with health. And that certainly seems to be true um, pretty universally among species. Um, and so 
organisms all the way from yeast up to fruit flies to mice and even to non-human primates um, when their calories are restricted um, by a certain percentage. And this usually is in the range of 20 to 40% or so. Um, so that they are have enough calories, but they're not overeating. They sort of metabolically adapt in a, a number of different ways and lots of different hormones and markers and of health change. Um, but generally these animals live longer, um, anywhere up from 20 to 40, maybe even 50% longer, depending on a lot of factors, including sex and strain and genetic background and um, exactly how much the restriction is. But they tend to be lean. That's probably not a surprise, right? If you overeat your fat. So if you're restricted your calories, you stay lean. Um, and they tend to be um, insulin sensitive. And that's sort of a universally observed um, trait in mammals that are calorie restricted. So they're lean, they're insulin sensitive, they tend to live longer, and they're protected from most age-related diseases. And so they get less cancer, less diabetes. Those animals that are prone to Alzheimer's disease tend to get less Alzheimer's disease. Um, and we see many of these metabolic benefits, at least in people as well, although nobody knows um, if it extends human lifespan. Mm -hmm. So, so one of the things that it seems like is a consistent marker of good general health is insulin sensitivity. And I think the thing that insulin is typically associated with is regulating your blood glucose levels. So, um, when someone becomes insulin insensitive, does that just mean that their body's not responding to the insulin and therefore their blood glucose levels are not being regulated properly? Or are there also other things that insulin does that maybe people don't typically talk about? Um, there's a lot of things that insulin does. So insulin is what we consider a, a signal of the fed state. Um, pretty much whenever you eat food, um, your insulin is going to spike. It might spike more or less depending on how much carbohydrates are in your meal, but it's going to go up. And typically, right, when you eat something, your body is, you know, evolutionarily adapted to think that there's going to be not just sugar there, but also proteins and fats. And so insulin stimulates the uptake of all three of those types of nutrients from your blood, amino acids, uh, they're based uh, the building blocks of protein, as well as different types of lipids. And it activates all sorts of anabolic processes that, where macromolecules are being built from not only sugar, but also from fat and protein. And so protein synthesis goes up, lipid synthesis goes up, cell membranes get made, um, cells might divide or get bigger, depending on uh, what other uh, developmental programs or, or signals might be present. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a signal of all different types of foods. And so in an insulin resistant state, you don't take up any of those things from your blood or you take up less of them. Mm, okay. So it's, it's not just blood glucose levels. It's, it has to do with the uptake of all of these types of major types of nutrients. Yeah. We tend to, to focus on sugar just because it's one of the most, um, uh, apparent things and also one of the easiest to measure, but, um, all of these different, uh, things, um, are stimulated, uh, by insulin. I see. So, so here, here's a simple question that I, I feel like I don't have a complete understanding of. If you're insulin resistant and you have a defect in your body's ability to take up macronutrients, including carbs, sugars, and proteins, why is insulin insensitivity associated with being obese then if your body's not taking them up as well? Well, that goes into uh, a whole big controversy that uh, you may well be familiar with. And I'm not going to sort of deep dive into that because I'm not, uh, that, that's not my specialty. But basically, people think that insulin um, might be obesogenic in itself. And so that as you express more insulin, um, in order for your body to overcome that insulin resistance. So when you're insulin resistant, your body starts pumping out more insulin to force your cells to respond to insulin. Um, once your beta cells get tired of making insulin at that level, which eventually they do, then that sort of progresses to type two diabetes. But during that stage where it's pumping tons of insulin out, there's this idea that it might be obesogenic or adipogenic, um, in of itself, it might drive other changes in metabolism. Um, so that hyperinsulinemic state might be deleterious as well. I see. And what type of molecule is insulin? Is it, uh, can you just uh, like to describe the type it is and, and so what exactly it's a, doing? Insulin is a small hormone. Um, it's a okay. peptide hormone. So it's made from just a small number of amino acids strung together. Um, and that's secreted and your body has many different hormones. 
Um, they're very similar to insulin in terms of being small peptide hormones that are floating around. And, you know, one of the things I know that you've done a lot of research on is amino acids. So proteins are made from amino acids. There's a bunch of different amino acids. One of the key differences between some of them is you always hear about essential versus non-essential amino acids. What's the difference there? So typically we think of about 20 common amino acids. Um, these are the ones that are the most common by far in food and are directly encoded by your nuclear genome. Those of your listeners who might dive into biology a little bit more know that there are, probably, there are other amino acids as well. Um, but of the amino acids that, um, that these common amino acids, nine are essential. And so basically you need them to grow and live um, if you're any mammal, I think. Um, certainly mice and humans have the same list of essential amino acids. Um, and But your body can make the other amino acids. There's some other subtleties in terms of, well, maybe some additional amino acids might be essential when you're um, a baby because you can't make enough of them. But um, for the most part, we think of those nine as being the key for a healthy diet. I see. So, so some amino acids your body can produce, some you need to get from your diet because your body can't make them. There's some subtleties there, but that's the basic idea. What about like, how much does the distribution or the profile of essential and non-essential amino acids vary from protein source to protein source? Um, it varies quite a bit um, between foods. So almost, I, I would say pretty much all foods have all amino acids in them. And it's possible that there's an exception, but I'm not aware of one. Um, but certainly, um, you know, there's definitely variation. Typically, we think that uh, vegan foods as being um, low in amino acid methionine, methionine may be low in plants. Um, there's some controversy there as well. Um, and then certain um, meats might have more of uh, branched chain amino acids um, that are very heavy in, uh, or concentrated in skeletal muscles. Mm -hmm. And so what would happen in general if you were deficient in one of the essential amino acids because you're eating some kind of specialized diet? Um, well, uh, I think sort of, sort of most familiar, you know, to your listeners might be the idea of scurvy, which is, you know, vitamin C deficiency it gives you sort of rickets and all sorts of um, nasty problems if you're on a ship without eating enough citrus. And uh, to sort of a broad generalization, the same thing is true if you are deficient in amino acid. Um, you'll probably be okay for a while. Your body will use up some of its stores of amino acids to make up that deficiency. And then various pathological symptoms will start arising and they'll differ based on which amino acid you're, you're deficient in. Mm -hmm. So basically it would be that eventually, so, so if you were deficient in one, you weren't getting enough of one of the essential amino acids in your diet, your body could initially compensate for that by, I, I guess, breaking down some of its existing proteins to get that particular amino acid. But you then eventually it wouldn't be able to mix the proteins that require that amino acid? Yeah, ba basically. Um, and, you know, it's very unlikely that anyone's going to be eating a natural food that's completely lacking any specific amino acid. Uh, but I'm sure that, you know, essential amino acid deficiencies may occur from time to time in people who might be, um, you know, only eating one or two foods instead of sort of the being an omnivore. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned branched chain amino acids. What What is that? Um, three of the essential amino acids have a, a branch in their carbon structure, and those are leucine, isoleucine, and valine. They're sort of most familiar to people as being amino acids that people who are athletes or bodybuilders might take supplements of. Um, and there's certainly a lot of commercial supplements of branched chain amino acids that are available on the market. Um, they're also um, some of the most important components of skeletal muscle, and they have a wide range of uh functions in physiology and metabolism. And my lab has done a lot of studying on them. I see. So is that why they're found in so many supplements that athletes and stuff take is because they are especially associated with muscle? They're especially associated with muscle. Um, you know, whether they are actually that beneficial in various contexts is, is sort of a, a separate question. I see. And, um, so what, I mean, what are some of the, are there examples of specific proteins whose synthesis requires some of these branched chain amino acids? Is it just like literally like the skeletal muscle components? Um, I think, you know, for the most part, any protein is going to require all 20 amino acids. I see. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're definitely going to have um, some proteins that contain more of one and some that contain more of another. 
Uh, it tends to be, I believe, that you know a lot of the proteins that are involved in skeletal muscle fibers and strength um, tend to be leucine or other branched amino acids. But um, you know, pretty much all proteins require all the amino acids. I see. And so you've done some research that has to do with these branched chain amino acids, either, you know, having a diet that's very rich in them or actually decreasing them in the diet, um, in the case of rodents at least. And so what, what is the basic sort of, uh, takeaways that you've learned in terms of the amount of branched chain amino acids in the diet and how that affects metabolic health? Sure. I think we should probably step back a little bit, um, to dietary protein and, so when you think about protein, right, you know, protein is generally thought of as, as being beneficial for people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is, this is for a couple of reasons, right? One is that there's this association of protein as something that helps your muscles grow, particularly when you're exercising. That's why lots of athletes take either protein supplements or branched amino acid supplements. Um, and secondly, you know, when you think about the major components of a diet, you know, we've had fats that we've been talking about um, as being bad for you for many years now. Um, and more recently, you know, for the last 20 years or so, there's been this focus on carbohydrates, particularly maybe refined sugars of various types as being um, detrimental for um, health in terms of driving obesity and diabetes. Um, for one thing, carbohydrates are insulin insulinogenic, right? They stimulate insulin release. So if you believe that insulin drives obesity, then there's sort of a direct causal link there. And so when you eat more protein, you crowd out these other calories and protein also helps you keep feel full, promote satiety. Um, and so you might eat less if you're eating a very high protein diet. So generally there's this conception that protein is beneficial. Um, and, you know, I like to joke when, when I'm talking about these types of things that, you know, here, I'm here to like ruin protein for you too. Right. Um, and so what it turns out that when you look at epidemiological studies of people eating dietary protein and other, um, other meals, just naturally, um, you know, these studies are very difficult to do accurately. I think because people have a lot of trouble writing down what they're eating or recalling what they ate or even recording in sort of real time. Um, but the advantage of them is that they can look at people over a very long period of time and use really large numbers to look at big populations. And so several of these studies have all come to basically the same conclusion, which is that um, the more protein that you eat, the more age-related diseases you're subject to. And so your rates of cancer might be higher, your rate of mortality might be higher if you're under the age of 65, um, over the age of 65, maybe not. Um, and diabetes is sort of the strongest signal. So um, people who eat more protein tend to have a higher rate of diabetes than people who eat less protein, even adjusting for things like body mass index and um, everything else that you can think of. And so working with Luigi Fontana, who at the time was at Washington University in St. Louis, um, he placed people on either a their normal control diet or randomized them to a protein-restricted diet that was fed in the hospital cafeteria. So same issue, you know, these are these people, we know exactly what they ate, but their foods are being changed completely, right? Because um, when you switch from a normal diet where people are eating, you know, burgers and fries to a diet where they're eating a low protein diet, they're probably, you know, eating fish and legumes and so on. But overall, the people who are eating a low protein diet, um, they lost weight you know, over six weeks. And uh, about half of that was from fat mass. So this wasn't just, you know, changes in muscle mass or water weight. And their fasting blood glucose levels went down too. And actually they're eating more calories. They have about 10% more calories um, than they did at baseline. So they're eating more food, but they're losing weight. And so that's really interesting. Those stu- um, findings have been um, reproduced in a population of type two diabetics now on a study that came out earlier this year. Same general idea, except it seemed even better. Those studies also showed that the protein restricted group um, had a significant improvement in insulin sensitivity along with um, some of their other changes. So dietary protein, you know, might be beneficial to reduce, this might have effects on all sorts of different age-related diseases, particularly ones relating to diabetes and glucose metabolism, uh, but maybe mortality as well. And so we wanted to study this in a mouse. And so there are lots of reasons to, to study things in mice. You know, one of the things that we can do is we can track exactly what they're eating and we control the composition of their food very precisely. Um, and we can also um, do lots of tests and study them over a longer period of time than you can a person on a diet study. Um, 
So what, what did we find? We found that basically dietary protein uh, restriction in mice is very beneficial. And so we weren't the only ones to see this. A couple other groups have been working on this before us and at the same time. Um, but generally speaking, mice that are placed on a lower protein diet um, tend to have improved fasting blood glucose levels. They tend to be leaner. They tend to be more insulin sensitive, uh, more glucose tolerant. And overall, um, they even live longer. And so um, protein restriction seems to extend lifespan um, in one of our studies by about 30% in male mice. And so protein restriction overall seems to be beneficial. So sort of wrapping this back around to your question about branched amino acids, branched amino acids are, of course, one of the um, important components of dietary protein. And we took the approach to that maybe the reason that low protein diets um, were beneficial for mice um, is that they have lower levels of specific amino acids. And one of the reasons that we looked at the branched chain amino acids is that they've been known to be sort of metabolically interesting for a long time. Um, back in the 1960s, it was shown that they're elevated in people who were obese. Subsequently, it was shown they're elevated in diabetic people and diabetic rodents of various types. Um, and in fact, they've sort of fluctuate with weight as well. So interventions that causes animals to lose weight typically um, lowers lower branched amino acid levels. In our protein-restricted people that we looked at with Luigi Fontana, we saw that in the people that were placed on a protein-restricted diet, um, three amino acids changed in their blood, and those were the three branched amino acids, while the levels of the other amino acids were essentially unchanged. So, I was just going to say, have you done the experiment where you take protein-restricted mice and you selectively increase just the branched-chain amino acids in them? Um, we have, but that's well down the line if you want, okay, to, okay. want to start. So um, so we thought the branched amino acids would be fun to look at in mice. And so to sort of wrap up quickly, um, if you restrict just the branched amino acids in mice and we control for everything else, so we keep the carbohydrates the same, we keep the fats the same, we keep the nitrogen content of the food the same by increasing non-essential amino acids sort of proportionally, um, the diets are matched in calories. What do we get? We get mice that are leaner. Um, we get mice that are um, more glucose tolerant. Um, they seem to have improvements in probably hepatic insulin sensitivity. So their liver seems to be more insulin sensitive. Um, and the mice live longer, uh, if, at least if they're male. So uh, branched amino acid restriction extends alone, extends male lifespan by about 30%. Um, females doesn't do anything uh, to them, at least in black six mice. And that's something that we're trying to understand why that is. Um, moving towards, um, you know, people are always worried about frailty, um, particularly here, we're talking about reducing a protein that's normally associated with skeletal muscle. If anything, our branch amino acid restricted mice are sort of just as strong and they tend to get less frail as they age. So uh, both mice and people tend to get frail as they age and we can slow that at least in, the, in the, those mice. And then in our more recent set of experiments, we sort of focused in on one of these amino acids is sort of the most important and that's isoleucine. And so restricting isoleucine alone recapitulates most of the beneficial metabolic effects of branched amino acid restriction in mice. And answer to your question, yes, if we take a, have a protein-restricted mice and we add back um, either all three BCAAs or um, isoleucine, we can essentially block all or most of the benefits of a protein-restricted diet. Hmm. So, so the effects that you've seen from protein restriction generally seem to be due to just this small number of branching amino acids, mostly, at least in the things that you've looked at. Do you guys have any idea yet of why that is? Like, What is isoleucine uh, specifically doing that makes it have such an outsized effect compared to other amino acids? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, so the, the first thing I would say is we've looked at all of the essential amino acids at this point. And we think that the most interesting are isoleucine, uh, valine, and histidine, which is a, not a branch chain amino acid. And so it seems like isoleucine and valine um, control a lot of the effects on body composition and glucose metabolism. Isoleucine, in fact, in humans, um, the amount of isoleucine in your diet uh, correlates with uh, your BMI um, in a study that uh, we did in people here in Wisconsin. And a, another group um, did sort of a machine learning approach to try and identify factors in the blood that predict um, mortality risk. 
And in fact, the more isoleucine in your blood in that study, um, the greater your mortality risk. And so there definitely seems to be some human relevance. Seems to be some human relevance to histidine as well. Histidine seems to only control body composition, not really glucose metabolism, which is kind of interesting. Might be sex specific in mice as well. Um, we're not sure about that. And um, again, in humans, it seems to correlate um, with body mass index pretty strongly. Um, and then we and a few other groups have, have linked failing as, you know, potentially being sort of interesting, particularly in obese mice, um, you know, how far, uh, we, we don't know exactly how far that goes. So those seem to be most metabolically interesting in our hands. As to why those two or three is, you know, sort of something that's a little bit up in the air. Um, we know that some of the effects of isoleucine restriction are driven by a hormone called FGF21, um, which is conserved from mice to humans and uh, is induced by a number of different nutrient and environmental stresses, including a low level of isoleucine in the diet. Um, but it's also induced by protein restriction and induced by cold um, and uh, seems to be involved in energy expenditure and sort of uh, ramping up metabolism um, when you're cold or when specific nutrients are missing. I see. And so, you know, one thing I want to dwell on for just a second is that, you know, I think a lot of people just have this very, very simplistic cartoon model of macronutrients in their mind where they think, oh, if I eat more fat, I will get fatter. If I eat more protein, I will get more muscular, vice versa. But it sounds like what you're saying is that's definitely not true because you can actually uh, decrease uh, protein intake, in particular, some of these essential amino acids, and that will actually decrease your fat levels. So it's not the simple fat equals fat, protein equals muscle type of equation. I should also throw in here, there's a couple other issues. So one is we find that some of these effects vary by genetic background. So the gene, exact genotype of the animal seems to matter. Probably that's true in people as well. And we think that um, exercise and activity level also matters. So, you know, most of the population is overweight or obese. We can assume that, you know, most of the population is not exercising very much. Probably they're a good match for a lot of the mouse studies that we're doing. Um, but we started doing some studies with exercise now as well. Um, and so, you know, I can tell you right off the bat, right? Um, if you are eating a high protein diet and you're sedentary and you're a mouse, um, you get fat. Um, and, uh, you know, exercise seems to eliminate some of those effects. Maybe, maybe those mice are building more skeletal muscle. So there seems to be a number of different factors that are um, interacting with the macronutrients in the diet to determine what, what does you know, the ultimate outcome is. Yeah, no, I was going to ask you about exercise and lifestyle because, um, you know, in these correlations that you've looked at in human populations, I would presume, but I'd love to know more about like, you know, you mentioned that there was this change in insulin sensitivity that it improved in people who are already uh, diabetic or insulin resistant. Um, and when you look at all these things in humans, what kind of populations do you typically look at? Is it a uh, random sample of the population? Does it tend to be people that already have certain metabolic disorders? Do you look at people based on like how active they are? In our initial study, um, the people were um, men in about 53, tended to be a little bit overweight, um, wasn't originally focused on metabolic outcomes. Uh, but I will tell you that um, there's been two small uh, clinical trials of branched amino acid restriction in Europe over the past few years. Um, and one of those looked at people who um, were sort of in normal good health and the other looked at diabetics. And in both of those populations, branch amino acid restriction seemed to improve insulin sensitivity um, in the course of just a couple of weeks. Um, so this probably applies um, more generally to, you know, the population overall, but, you know, the population overall is probably pretty sedentary too. I see. I see. So yeah, that's that's something I guess we have to be careful of. And you basically said that in the typical mouse in a mouse study, um, you would consider these to be relatively sedentary mice compared to like wild mice or mice that specifically get access to like exercise wheels and stuff. Is that what we should assume for most mouse studies? Um, wild mice can have probably have their own issues, but I would say that yes, you know, these mice don't have free access to a running wheel all the time. Um, and you know, if they did, right, they'd probably be thinner because, uh, they'd be running all the time, you know, and same, same with the human, um, you know, if you had a running wheel in your office, maybe you do, uh, you know, they probably uh, get more exercise. Interesting. Um, interesting. Okay. So, um, 
what are so there's a, a an interesting question I want to ask around uh, the effects of this protein restriction protocol. So it has positive metabolic effects in terms of things like glucose homeostasis and insulin resistance. You said that it actually produces quite remarkable uh, changes to lifespan, increases lifespan. Is uh, is that generally true of health span too? What is this distinction between health span and lifespan, and do both of those things tend to go go together? Well, health span um, in humans is sort of associated with the idea of, you know, a lack of frailty, I would say, right? We think of a healthy person as sort of eight who's older as someone who's capable of living independently, can carry on activities of daily living, leave the house, get groceries, get dressed, et cetera, right? Um, and so, you know, we can't measure those things directly in a mouse um, in the same way. Um, Susan Hallett and Kenneth Rockwood, who um, or Dalehouse uh, University in Canada, came up with this clinical frailty index for mice that sort of matches what's um, used clinically in people as well. And so we could score the animals on a variety of um, uh, measurements based on how they look, how they walk, how their reflexes react. Um, and uh, we can figure out whether or not these mice are frail. And it's sort of a, a quantitative way of something that you can see in, in any animal, right? I'm sure that many people have seen frail dogs walking around on the street. And of course we know what frailty looks like in a person. Um, so we, we measure that in our animals and if anything, they're less frail um, on a low protein or low branch amino acid restricted diet. Um, there might be some subtleties. We're trying to see um, what age uh, these diets need to be initiated at in order to get these benefits. Um, and in particular, there's a lot of uh, human data that suggests that people who um, are older might have different protein needs than people who are younger. Um, and so that the elderly might need um, higher protein diets, um, particularly for sarcopenia. So that could be um, sort of another complicating factor um, that uh, needs to be worked out. And you mentioned that you've you've seen um, some sex differences in mice. Um, have you have you started to work out exactly why you see those differences, and do we expect or do we also see that in humans? To the extent that we've been able to look at our human data, there's in terms of how amino acids correlate with uh, body mass um, body mass index. Um, there is not a sex effect, so that's kind of interesting. Um, in mice, there's definitely metabolic effects um, in both sexes, but the effects on aging and aging-related phenotypes are always much stronger in males. Um, we don't know why that is. Um, we do know that in our branched amino acid-restricted studies, um, we looked at the activity of a protein called mTOR. And so um, mTOR kinase activity is associated um, with all sorts of anabolic processes. It's stimulated by amino acids and thus protein. Um, and it's lower when we restrict dietary protein. So when we restricted dietary branch amino acids, we saw that mTOR activity um, was down in the male mice that lived longer, but not down in the female mice that didn't live longer. And so there's a correlation there um, with mTOR activity and longevity. Um, whether that drives um, these effects or not, we don't know. We also don't know why it is that the females don't have a, a change in mTOR activity in response to lower levels of pr protein. Um, you know, one of the things that we have seen in males and Jay Mitchell's um, laboratory also sort of saw in male mice um, is that there seems to be a death threshold effect. And so sort of above nine or 10% of calories coming from protein, you're in a sort of non-protein restricted zone and below that you're um, in a protein restricted zone. And it doesn't seem to matter exactly how little protein you have, at least from the perspective of inducing this um, program. And when you do protein restriction or caloric restriction generally, is that, are you typically doing experiments where you're restricting the amount of calories or the amount of protein in the diet, or are you also restricting uh, when the animals have access to food? Um, we give them ad libitum free access to food with less protein in it. Um, and so their calorie consumption goes up. Um, so they're actually eating more fat and more sugar. And they actually have to burn off that extra energy in the form of heat in order to remain lean. Um, and so energy expenditure is much higher in those animals. Sort of the basal metabolic rate is ramped up. Um, and trying to understand what actually mediates that is also sort of something that's, I think, quite interesting. Um, but um, yeah, we haven't um, done too much uh, limiting time of day. We, we, did a, we did a little bit of an experiment there 
Um, I think overall the results were were pretty small in terms of uh, time of day effects. Mm-hmm. And how do you start to think about like how you interpret mouse studies on metabolism and aging? in terms of how they can translate to humans. So like, do, do we think of my, like, obviously mice and humans are different and we have a lot of differences between us, but I guess we're both sort of similar in the sense that, right. We're sort of opportunistic omnivorous animals. We're not pure carnivores or herbivores. How do you start to think about how uh, like similar a mouse is in terms of its general metabolism and like digestive structure and how that influences how we can maybe think about translating the, the mouse work to humans? So obviously there's a lot of similarities between um, mice and humans, um, sort of all between all living things. Uh, my kid's uh, National Geographic book says that we share 50% of our genes with a banana. Um, so, you know, there's definitely a lot of similar cellular and metabolic processes that are going on. Uh, but you're totally right. You know, mice are not furry little humans. Um, you know, they're, they're completely different in a variety of ways. Um, but that said, you know, uh, they have lifespan, they have a certain lifespan, we can measure that they seem to have a lot of the same sort of age related deficits that um, humans do. Um, When they eat a diet that uh, is unhealthy for us, they become unhealthy. Um, When they are on a diet that seems to be healthy for us, typically, they respond in a healthy way. And many drugs and medications work the same in mice and humans. So we can't necessarily assume that they're going to respond the same way. But Overall, it seems like uh, they're a decent model for humans, and it seems like they're a decent models for the human response to protein-branched amino acids based on the concordance of our experimental data in mice and a little bit of experimental data and a lot of observational data in people. Um, but there could certainly be differences that um, matter in terms of translating these uh, results. And, you know, how do we, I want to start to ask you some general questions about like, how we assess and measure and determine when a healthy is relative uh, when a diet is relatively healthy versus relatively unhealthy and what goes into that so you know other than you know like like if you give a if you give an animal a high fat diet or something that is supposed to resemble an, an american or western diet mm-hmm. or you give it this protein restricted diet how do you determine exactly whether or not that's healthy or not? Is it because you're also measuring all these other markers like glucose, you know, resting glucose levels and insulin sensitivity, and you're using those things to determine whether or not something's healthy or not? I mean, that's typically sort of uh, what we go with. Although, you know, labs that are more focused on cardiology, um, you know, would also notice that, you know, when you feed mice sort of a Western high fat, high sucrose diet that contains cholesterol, that they do become hyperlipidemic, have high levels of triglycerides, have high levels of um, fat. If we use modified mice that are a little bit more like humans in terms of their cardiovascular system, we can see atherosclerotic plaques form uh, when we feed them these diets and then you know, not form when we feed them a diet that's healthier. Um, I think the same is true for lots of different systems as well. You know, Certainly, an unhealthy diet in a variety of ways is going to be deleterious for the heart. It's going to be deleterious for the kidney and so on. So what would be an example of one of the healthiest uh, diets? What, what is the composition of one of the healthiest diets that you can give just a regular lab mouse? What, what does that diet look like? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, from the perspective of, of the actual healthiest diet, right? The actual healthiest diet is probably still the, sort of the gold standard, which is calorie restricted diet and a diet where, you know, they are mostly eating less rather than eating a sort of something that's slightly different in terms of um, its macronutrient content. But in terms of, you know, sort of standard diets, I'd say a diet that in particular is probably not too high in protein. Um, and, you know, probably overall is relatively um, energy dilute so that, um, you know, not that they're eating all the time, but, you know, when, as they're eating, they sort of feel full, not very calorie dense. I see. And is there, it doesn't ma- how much does it matter? So let's say that you're calorie restricted or you're giving a mouse a calorie restricted diet. How much does you know, how much is it the total amount of calorie restriction per se? How much of it is like, you know, if you if you just cut the calories they're consuming by 20% per day and you just do that every single day versus you cut the same amount, but you put that all into a 24, 48 hour window where they're not eating, how much do those factors start to matter? 
So that goes in, into some of our um, more recent work, but the, you know, overall, this is something that people have played with um, for a long time. So you know, typically we think of calorie restriction in a mouse as mice that are being fed once a day. Um, and those animals, regardless of whether they're restricted 20% or 40%, tend to eat all of their food in a couple hours. They don't have very much restraint. They'll, you know, you, they see the food in front of them, they eat it, um, and then they will fast the rest of the, the rest of the time. Um, but people have actually played with a, a variety of, of different regimens um, in animals. And for instance, at least when started young, um, feeding mice every other day so that they just eat, get a then essentially a normal meal one day and then skip the meal the next day um, is very effective at, at extending lifespan. Um, and there are other regimens as well. And people who did calorie restriction, you know, typically would eat sort of two or three meals a day. Um, They're sort of spaced out. Um, nowadays, I understand that uh, that might be coming less true, that people are more um, focusing on, you know, being like a mouse and sort of eating just one meal a day. Um, but we don't know that either of those is beneficial or not per se, although there's a lot of data that suggests that compressing your feeding window in general in both people and mice is beneficial. Um, Sachin Panna's work in particular has looked um, at what happens when a mouse or in some clinical trials, people eat, um, you know, sort of a, a westernized diet um, but confine the amount of time that they eat to. And so mice that confine their Western diet feeding to a 12-hour period tend to be very healthy um, and not gain a lot of extra weight, um, whereas those that are eating or have food access around the clock, not so uh, healthy. Um, but in our sort of our studies, we've um, actually found um, uh, that this fasting period is very important um, to the benefits of calorie restriction. And so um, the graduate student who did this work, Heidi Pack, was focused on um, trying to understand how feeding rhythm in particular was sort of uh, related to um, health. And so she put mice on regimens where they either um, were eating a calorie-restricted diet, a normal diet, um, and or sorry, a normal calorie-restricted diet where they're just fed once a day and they eat their food in a couple hours, or a diluted diet, which was very energy dilute and in fact had a lot of cellulose content far higher than you'd normally find in any diet. Um, and these mice, even though they sort of ate around the clock whenever they felt hungry, um, you know, those mice actually were calorie restricted as well by about the same amount as our calorie restricted mice. And what was really interesting was that the mice are eating this energy dilute diet, sort of eating around the clock. Um, they ate 30% less calories, but they didn't get the benefits of a calorie-restricted diet. Um, they did become more glucose tolerant, but they weren't more insulin sensitive. They actually tended to be on the insulin resistant side of a spectrum. And they didn't live longer either. They actually had a shorter lifespan, about 9% shorter um, than mice that were just eating a normal chow. Um, and so definitely we think that fasting period is very important. Um, in some follow-up experiments, she found that if you take mice and train them to eat their entire day's worth of food in about two or three hours, um, that those mice metabolically are very healthy. They look very similar to calorie-restricted mice, even though they're not calorie-restricted. They're just eating all their food in a very rapid period of time. Mm. Um, so, you know, um, parents who say don't rush your food might not be all that correct. What, um, what have been the most effective dietary strategies in humans who are insulin resistant or diabetic at, at improving their insulin sensitivity? Does calorie restriction work similar to it does in mice? Um, does changing the diet without restricting calories work at all? Um, I mean, you may be aware that some of the more recent work in a tech field of type 2 diabetes has been concentrated on the fact that um, contrary to what people have thought for a long time, um, that type 2 diabetes is reversible in about 30 to 60% of people. And basically, um, that is reversible by severe calorie restriction. Um, and people are placed on very very heavily modified diets where they cut a lot of calories. And if they can lose about, roughly speaking, I think about 8 to 10% of their excess body weight, typically, you know, the majority of those people will either, you know, need less medication or go back to um, having normal glucose metabolism. And as far as we know, if those people can then keep the weight off, um, which is its own struggle, right? A lot of people have put weight back on, but if they can keep the weight off, then they will remain um, in remission from type two diabetes for the rest of their life. 
This seems to only apply to people who are sort of newly diagnosed. The longer that people have been diabetic, the less well this type of uh, dietary intervention works, probably because fewer and fewer beta cells are be able, uh, could be rescued. I see. So type 2 diabetes can be reversible and a fairly substantial percentage of people with type 2 diabetes that tends to be people who've not had it for that long. And I guess the idea here is the longer you've had type 2 diabetes, the longer your beta cells in your pancreas have been defective in their ability to produce and release insulin. And at some point, maybe that just becomes irreversible. And I mean, the, the beta cells will die. And in fact, you do see a loss of total beta cell mass in addition to progressive dysfunction. Um, why, do, why do they actually, why do they die? Um, that, uh, my, my colleagues here study beta cells. So I won't, uh, you know, try and try and explain that uh, for the risk of uh, saying something wrong. But I think uh, there are a lot of, a lot of uh, reasons that that might be. Um, I think some cytokines that are released in response to inflammation and obesity contribute to that. Um, as well as the incredible stress of producing a ton of insulin. Um, so beta cells actually do some of the hardest work in the body in terms of the sheer number of molecules of insulin that they pump out every minute um, after you eat something that has sugar in it. Mm -hmm. um, so back on the topic of like how we assess the the level of healthiness that we assign to a given diet. One of the things that I think is super interesting, and you talked about this a little bit in one of your review papers, is that on the one hand, you know, in the Western world, generally, we, th we see things trending in the wrong direction in terms of metabolic health. So you cite in one of your papers that you know, obesity has tripled in men and doubled in women since the mid-70s. 43% uh, of Americans between the ages of 40 and 59 are now obese as of about 2016. We're seeing obesity in younger and younger individuals over time. So something like 40% of children are now overweight or obese. And so all of those things are getting worse. Those numbers are going up. And yet there's this thing called the healthy eating index, and that's been flat or even improving in recent years. So there's kind of like this mismatch where apparently we're eating healthier, or at least not eating worse, according to some of these indices, but we're in worse metabolic health. So how do you start to think about making sense of that and what goes into some of these measures for what healthy diets are for humans? Well, I would say, you know, one thing is that all of these are age associated conditions, right? Um, and so, you know, you mentioned that and came up with the analogy, right? That um, you know, the longer you have diabetes, the worse your beta cells um, are going to do, they'll die, they'll become more dysfunctional, and so on. I think the same is true from the perspective of um, insulin resistance and developing diabetes in general. You know, if you are pre-diabetic sooner when a younger age, I think you have more time as you get older for age-related changes in your body to cause your beta cells to become more susceptible. And we've studied that a little bit. Um, about how beta cells, um, particularly in humans, become more dysfunctional um, as you age. And so, um, you know, I think some of it may be due just to the aging of the population overall, which has been going on in, you know, this country as well as around the world. Um, there are more older people, and so there's going to be a higher rate of obesity because people have more time to get fat as they get older. There's going to be an increased rate of diabetes as people are insulin resistant for longer and eventually develop pre-diabetes and, and diabetes. Um, there may be other considerations too. Um, you know, one thing is it's very difficult to measure what people are eating. Um, and so, you know, um, I'm not familiar with the details of the, of how the healthy uh, eating index is generated. Um, but I would say that, you know, it's notorious that it's difficult to, to track exactly what people are eating. I see. Um, and so you mentioned, uh, that you have at least one kid, right? Uh, two, yes. So you have two kids. So based on like your background and everything that you've learned about metabolism, what are some like the general rules that you use when you are uh, helping them determine their diet? Uh, for the most part, uh, they they uh, are their their issue is uh, eating enough, <laughs> and you know that's certainly I think uh, an issue that uh, lots of parents have in terms of making sure that. Uh, you know, both they eat enough and uh, that they don't eat too much junk food on the other side, right? And so, of course, they, you know, are always getting, you know, vegetables and so on. Um, and, but uh, they also, um, you know, and they eat a lot of fruit. So, you know, that's beneficial too, I think. Um, 
but they, you know, also eat hot dogs and pizza and so on. So, you know, sort of standard kid food. I see. Um, so it's really difficult. <laughs> I think, I think everybody knows who knows that, uh, you know, kids, have, kids go through lots of phases. Um, heard lots of, uh, stories, uh, you know, about, uh, kids who will only eat one, one or two things for years at a time. And I'm glad uh, we don't have that particular issue. Yeah. And when you do, um, so one thing that I'm thinking about too, is when you do rodent studies, when you work with mice, typically, you know, I used to work with mice and we used to give them chow, which is basically just mouse food, which I guess people can analogize to just pet food or something. Sure. So it, it basically, it's not right. You wouldn't call that a whole food. It's not like we're, we're, you know, plucking food from nature and putting it in the cage. It's a processed form of food. Do you think that affects the outcome of these experiments at all? Like the, the way this uh, mouse chow is constructed, or do you think that's probably not a major factor? I mean, you know, it's a, it's a limiting and um, non-limiting issue at the same time, right? Um, we typically don't use chow for our amino acid studies. We use diets that um, are similar to chow in which are built from the individual amino acids sort of being mixed together in a big vat with, you know, different types of fat and sugar. Um, and then, you know, all processed up, probably very similar to, you know, a very hot, very highly processed human food. Um, so definitely um, that might have some health effects on its own. Um, and we control for that, um, you know, using uh, control diets while we modify different amino acid levels. But absolutely, I think you know um, it does have uh, it does have issues. And same thing with chow. Um, you know, there's some other disadvantages with chow as well as that there's seasonal variations in terms of what goes into it. Um, that's an advantage that we don't have with our amino acid defined diets, um, where we don't you know we we build it exactly, so we don't really have seasonal issues. Um, but there's definite is issues with all of these um, things. On the other hand, you know. The, the flip side, of course, is that we know exactly what they're eating. Um, and so, you know, and we can control it very precisely, um, which is something that is not possible with food. And, you know, even if in sort of a, you know, um, gold standard now, I think for human feeding studies, the people take pictures of their plates before and after the meal. And so, you know, you can use a computer or person to figure out exactly what percentage of the food that they ate and so on. But, you know, there's probably still going to be variation between each egg and each piece of meat, each vegetable in terms of exactly what its calorie content and nutrient content is going to be. So there's downsides to, you know, doing these studies in natural foods too. Yeah. And, and another thing that I thought was interesting that you mentioned in a couple spots was that you see things like um, differences between males and females in terms of the effects of protein restriction on their metabolic health. You see differences in, metabolic health based on the genetic background of the animals you're working with. And all this stuff makes sense, right? It makes intuitive sense that men and women would on average uh, metabolize things in somewhat different ways. It makes sense that there's going to be genetic variation in aspects of metabolism that are going to affect how you utilize carbs versus fats versus proteins. I think also just right in our day-to-day -day lives, we can clearly see that people have you know, different metabolisms, uh, broadly speaking. So what does some of this stuff start to say about the idea of, you know, personalized diets and personalized recommendations and how people can start to figure out from themselves, like whether or not they should be on one diet for versus another, if there's not a one size fits all sort of diet, that's the best for everyone. Yeah, I think that's um, very important uh, that this, you know, and, and something that's a field of both nutrition and aging is sort of coming around to this idea of personalized food as medicine or personalized Jerry Nutri-Science as uh, uh, Kenny Wilson, Pankaj Kafai um, have sort of dubbed it. Uh, but, you know, um, in terms of our, uh, our sort of work in the lab, um, you know, I think this really highlights the need to you know, not just study things in one strain and one sex. And so we're having a lot of fun in the lab right now, um, looking at a panel of genetically inbred uh, mouse strains, each with its own genotype and sort of figuring out how those strains respond to dietary protein and other amino acids. And so for instance, I can tell you, you know, a low protein diet on average, um, about 80% of the strain, mouse strains that we um, look at have about have, have a reduction in body weight and adiposity when we feed them a low protein diet. 
but there's, you know, about 20% where it actually goes in the other direction. And isn't that mm. it? And those genotypes not only vary among themselves, but the same genotypes don't respond the same way between males and females all the time. And so there's definitely both sex and strain variation. We're hoping to identify genetic variants um, that might mediate these effects, both to better understand the mechanisms of what's happening and also to, you know, ask whether those genes um, in the future might regulate uh, what those human responses. So can we identify the people who are going to respond very well to a low protein diet? Are there people who would respond better to a high protein diet or a keto diet or a Mediterranean diet or a Paleolithic diet and so on? Um, so I think, you know, there, there's um, a lot of possibilities there. And I think, although I don't technically, you know, I'm not aware of a study that's actually looked at this and it's totally possible. My own intuitive, you know, belief is that people are bad at adhering to diets, but they're probably good at adhering to diets or better at adhering to diets if they actually work, if they see a difference, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if we can find the people who are going to really respond well to a low protein diet, put them on a low protein diet, and they, you know, very rapidly become metabolically healthier, they're probably going to follow that. And, you know, maybe we can find personalized diets for other people too, as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the lab, obviously you guys are very well equipped equipped to go into the mouse cage, grab the mouse, do your glucose homeostasis tests and your insulin sensitivity tests and all that stuff. Are there easy ways for the average person to get some indication of those things in themselves? Do they have to go to the doctor to do it? Are there, are there things that they can do at home to measure that now? Well, I mean, you know, certainly type two diabetics use um, blood glucose monitors all the time, both the sort of traditional finger prick ones as well as now uh, continuous glucose monitors. Um, I'm certainly aware that there seems to be a growing um, number of people who are paying out of pocket to, you know, do sort of continuous glucose monitoring um, at home. Um, and, you know, I, you know, some of those people think that it's very useful for them, and I'm certainly not going to, you know, disagree with it. Um, I think it mean, remains to be seen whether this is something that really is useful for, for most of the population in terms of identifying uh, various factors, um, at least in, you know, at least as it regards to the fact that there's genetic um, causes, right? I think that, um, you know, in the future, there might be a room for a dietitian to just sequence their genome, right? And, you know, this is something that's come down and cost very rapidly. Um, I think for the next generation of machines predicted to give something like a 100 to $200 genome. Um, and, you know, certainly that might be in the range of something that, uh, you know, insurance would cover or a lot of people um, who are very interested in their dietary health might cover. Interesting. Uh, so what are some of the major questions that your lab is pursuing uh, right now that you think are going to be uh, really interesting? Um, we're really interested in um, studying the effect of the individual amino acids on lifespan and trying to understand um, what the mechanisms of those might be. Um, we're testing a couple of different candidate mechanisms, including FGF21, that's hormone that seems to be induced by protein restriction in a lot of mouse strains, but not all of them, um, uh, by, by dietary protein restriction, um, and also is induced in humans by protein restriction. Um, and then we're doing um, quite a bit of work on genetic mapping, trying to understand um, sort of from a systems biology approach, what alleles and areas of the genomes of the mice might contribute to these effects. Um, definitely starting to look at some um, uh, loci that are becoming statistically significant as we put in more strains. And we're hoping um, that we'll be able to um, start focusing on that pretty soon. And uh, a number of projects uh, in the lab are focusing on Alzheimer's disease and looking at how um, dietary protein and calorie restriction might be used as interventions um, for that disease. Mm. Is there is there some indication that things like dietary restriction and calorie restriction are going to be beneficial for neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's? Um, there's a lot of data in mouse models of Alzheimer's disease. Um, all of these models have limitations. So, you know, whether they accurately model by human disease is, uh, I think, something that's uh, heavily disputed. Uh, but there are non-human primates that sort of spontaneously develop Alzheimer's disease as well. And calorie restriction has been shown to be beneficial um, in terms of uh, reducing the incidence and maybe severity of Alzheimer's disease um, as well. Certainly, the flip side is true in humans. We know that humans who um, who are obese or diabetic have a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. 
And so there definitely seems to be that same sort of correlation between metabolic health, insulin sensitivity, how much food is consumed, um, and the risk of Alzheimer's disease. And certainly the preliminary data from our lab is sort of encouraging, at least um, in a very limited number of mouse models, that there might be some benefit. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Professor Lamming, I want to thank you for your time. This is a, a topic, you know, a general area of metabolism that I think is very fascinating. It's obviously very relevant to people and their health. It's also super complicated, and there's just always a lot to chew on here. And I think it's it's really hard for people to grok um, all of the information that's relevant. Are there any sort of major takeaways or pieces of advice you want to give to people in terms of how they can best uh, best preserve their metabolic health as they get older? Um, well, I think, you know, the, the one thing that seems very clear from both the human and animal studies is that um, dietary protein is, um, or taking extra dietary protein, eating more di- dietary protein, um, seems to be not useful for sedentary people who are young. Um, and so, you know, people who are elderly over the age of 65, that might not be the case. People are exercising. That's almost certainly not the case. Um, but most people who are sedentary probably shouldn't be focusing on eating a lot of protein or eating a high protein diet. Excellent. Well, Professor Dudley Lamming, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. 